Amen. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. So I was reading, I found some responses on the internet to the question, how are you? Responses to the question, how are you? Because you get asked that a lot. And so it's always good to have some responses on deck, right? Because sometimes you wonder, you know, how, what do I say? And I thought about during the greeting time today, how helpful this would have been if you had had these responses, you know, ahead of time. Uh, one of them is, uh, how are you? Well, somewhere between better and best. I like that one. How are you? If I had a tail, I would wag it. That's pretty good. <laughs> so, how, how are you doing? Well, if I was any better, vitamins would be taking me. <laughs> ah. So, how are you? Well, I'm feeling so good that I have to sit on my hands to stop myself from clapping. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Well, how are you? Well, if I was any finer, I would be China. How are you? Doing fairly well, unless you have some contagious disease and are about to infect me with it. Wait, too soon with the COVID and everything? Uh, I'm going to laugh at this stuff. You know, We've got to make light of something, right? How are you? Well, your attempt at social interaction to be polite is hereby acknowledged. <laughs> I could think of somebody in here that might say that, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. And finally, how are you? Much better than I deserve, right? Today's message deals with responses. That's what we just talked about there. And three responses or reactions to Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see in the passage today. The main point really is that Jesus Christ elicits a response from men and women, some are indifferent, some are defensive, and some worship. And we're going to see that in the passage here today. So just a little recap. Last time, Matthew laid out Jesus' credentials in the genealogy passage of Matthew. Matthew, the first chapter, dealt with Jesus' legal lineage through his adopted father, Joseph, taking him back. And what he did was he proved that Jesus was the son of David and the son of Abraham. And what he's doing is he's proving that Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah. Uh, the Messiah that was going to come, the Savior of the world, he had to be the son of David and he had to be the son of Abraham. So that's the point of the genealogy in Matthew is to prove that point. He also, uh, Matthew proved in the last section of chapter 1 that Jesus was born of a virgin. And we talked about how the text allows for nothing else other than this, you know, the clear description that Jesus uh, came supernaturally into this world through a miracle conception and that he was born of a virgin. So that was last time. Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah because he's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. And also, uh, he was born of a virgin. Now, this time, we're going to tune in as the wise men visit. And the second main part of the message, uh, the family, Jesus' family, flees to Egypt and then settles in Nazareth. So we're going to go and look through this verse by verse. And I want to, you know, I don't want to spoil it for you ahead of time, but some of you that are really attached to your nativity scenes, you could get upset during this because what you find is the Bible and the American Hallmark version of Christmas and stuff like that are at odds with each other. So I just want to brace you for that. You know, some of you are already clutching it like, oh no, baby Jesus, my nativity scene, it's, you know, it's my, I need that, it's my idol, you know. 
So you might get a little upset by reading the Bible here, and I just want to brace you for that. No, I'm just kidding. You're probably not you know, concerned about that at all. But here we go. All right, verses 1 through 12, the wise men visit. Let's look at the wise men arriving in Jerusalem. Now, starting at verse number 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, Jesus has done nothing at this point. I just want to point that out right away. He's just, he's a young kid at this point. But through this passage, we see that he's already getting a huge reaction. Isn't that interesting? The power of Jesus Christ, even even as a baby, even as an infant, he's causing great reactions great responses in the world. He's born in Bethlehem, it says there. That means the house of bread. And that is a village about six miles outside of Jerusalem. And this is during the time of Herod the king. Herod's name, it means heroic. Um, There are four rulers in the Bible named Herod. So you might get confused. Who are all these different Herods? I'm not going to explain all of them now, but I'll tell you that there are four of them. This one is Herod the Great. Now, he ruled from 37 to 4 B.C. He's known for his many great building projects. Uh, Many of the great ruins in Jerusalem today are the work of Herod. He was an Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau. Now, which meant that he wasn't a true Jew, but he liked the Jews. He actually observed their religion. He, in fact, showed great favor to the Jews when he took upon himself to rebuild essentially Solomon's temple, the temple of the Jews, he essentially added on to it. Um, he, I don't know why it goes in my mind, but I think of like an HGTV show where it's like renovations and here comes Herod and he's, oh my goodness, sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, look it up online, Google it, um, what Herod's temple looked like. It's just an amazing, he did amazing things. And he was quite a, you know, quite a leader in some ways. But he was also known for his extreme cruelty. Uh, he imposed heavy taxes on the citizens. He was kind of a, an anomaly. So he, he likes the Jews, he sympathizes with them, likes their religion, but yet he imposes heavy taxes upon them. So the Jews, you know, were like, ugh, you know, uh, they didn't really think too much of him uh, in that sense. He became really paranoid in his older, in his later years in life, paranoid and angry. So he put his wife and most of his sons to death, actually, because he thought that they were plotting against him, thought the sons were plotting to get him out of the way to take over the throne. Um, later on, though, he puts a large monument up to Miriam, his wife, because he missed her. So It gives you kind of the idea of this insanity in this guy. Extreme power and insanity together. Dangerous, right? Um, In fact, it was said by, you know, many in those days that it was safer to be his pig than it was to be his son. Because he didn't eat pork, right? To the Jews. Safer to be his pig than his son. That's Herod. We're setting the scene here. And it says now that Herod, you know, I told you that he ruled from... 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. And you think, well, that's interesting because he's ruling at the time where Jesus is a kid, but he stopped ruling at 4 B.C. Well, if you're thinking through this, uh, you know, you find that the calendar is actually wrong and people actually don't know the exact year Jesus was born. Some scholars think Jesus was actually born five years B.C. So uh, how was Jesus born five years 
before Christ. You know, you can hash that out, Google it all you want, research that all you want. But essentially, long story short, the calendar, the Gregorian calendar, you know, doesn't line up with actual events. Um, but nobody knows the exact year that Jesus was born. It was right around there. Now, wise men going on came from the east to Jerusalem. So according to Christmas tradition here in your nativity scene, there were three of them. Bible does not say there were three of them. Um, they also were not kings. Uh, you know, you've heard this song, we three kings of Orient are. You know, I don't know the words after that. Something about we came from so far and gifts and goods and something, camels, and back to the east we went. Something like that. That's oh, terrible. They were not kings. Uh, the reason they think there are three of them is because they brought three gifts, uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they, well, there's three kings. Um, they actually would have traveled in a large caravan. And they actually did not come on the night of Jesus' birth, but anywhere from a few months to a year later. So like the, you know, the nativity scene with the wise men and the stable and all that stuff, it's technically not right. Um, I'm not much for tradition, especially when it gets it wrong. So, you know, I don't know. You can do what you want with that. And it says wise men there, and so the Greek word translated wise men is the word magi or magi is how you hear it pronounced. It's the equivalent of our word magician. Now, this word magi in this time was uh, a term that was by the Persians and Babylonians ascribed to scientists, astrologers, soothsayers, occultists, different things like that. And so in this case, it refers to, you know, they're kind of astrologers. That's what we get. They saw a star, and they come, and they try to find the Messiah as a result of this star. Being from the east, they were likely among Jews that had been exiled from Judah and Israel from years before. Now, it's interesting that they had knowledge of the scriptures. Here you've got these wise men. They're from the east. They see this star, and they think, you know, we need to go to Jerusalem because the Messiah has been born. So my mind goes, well, how did they know anything about the Messiah and all that? Um, some scholars actually, you know, like I said, there were Jews that were exiled um, from their land out into these different places in the east, going all the way, uh, you know, back to even around the time of Daniel, um, you read in Daniel chapter 1, verse, uh, it's like right in the first chapter, it talks about how there were uh, eunuchs, or it's in chapter 2, 1 or 2, that, had, that they were gifted in wisdom, talking about these kind of wise men that were all the way back to the time of Daniel. So, you know, it's possible that Daniel, you know, shared prophecies and scriptures, and they had descended from that. And nonetheless, they'd seen the star, and they come to Jerusalem. Now, verses 3 through 6. So, now you remember, Herod's, he's paranoid that people are going to take over the throne, right? And um, these guys are going around Jerusalem saying to everybody, where's the king of the Jews? And so Herod catches wind of this. And then verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. By the way, if Herod was troubled, all of Jerusalem was troubled with him, right? That kind of guy. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod catches wind that they're looking for the king of the Jews. And so what does he do? Is he calls in the leaders of the Jews, the chief priests, and the scribes. The chief priests were like the hierarchy 
in the Jewish temple. Uh, they were mostly Sadducees. Now, if you know that word Sadducees, they, they were sort of the liberal kind of, you know, they were, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were the Jewish leaders, and the Sadducees were on the liberal side, uh, more political, more involved with, you know, the politics of the day, and the, the Pharisees were the very strict Bibleists. They were the legalists, Right. The Sadducees didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in, uh, that's why they call them the Sadducees, right? <laughs> the Sadducees. See, if you get that, you see it written out, it looks like that. That's kind of fun. Maybe that'll, uh, you know, stick in your mind a little bit. Now, so that's the chief priests, mostly Sadducees. And then the scribes. Now, the scribes were primarily Pharisees. They were authorities in Jewish law. Now, sometimes they're referred to in the scriptures as the lawyers, uh, they were professional scholars whose specialty was explaining the application of the Torah, of the Jewish Bible. And so they're Bible professionals, right? So Herod calls the Bible professionals together to see where's the king of the Jews supposed to be born? And what do they do? They tell him that he is to be born in Bethlehem of Judah. And he's quoting there from the book of Micah. It's pretty interesting that the prediction of Jesus' birth to be in Bethlehem was written in the book of Micah. Does anybody know when that was written? Because that was written in the 8th century B.C. So isn't it pretty amazing uh, that the Bible is filled with these predictions of exactly where Jesus is going to be born, how he's going to die, and so on, and they've all come to fulfillment. Isn't that interesting? So they quote um, Micah 5.2 to them. I think it's interesting that they don't say for a minute, hmm, let me go look at the, the scrolls. I'll find out the answer and I'll come back. Do you ever notice that? The answer was right on deck, wasn't it? I want you to think about that for a second. The religious professionals knew right away where he was to be born. Some wise men show up in town and say, we've seen this star and we think the Messiah has been born, but yet we don't see even the slightest curiosity on the part of the chief priests and the scribes to go with the wise men to find him. I think that's pretty interesting. And we'll talk about that later. Now, verses 7 through 8, the governor now, he's going to summons the wise men. So he's talked to the religious professionals and now he's going to talk to the wise men themselves. Verse 7, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. That's good. On the surface, it seems, you know, Herod's got his act together. He wants to worship the Messiah. That's great. Okay. Verses 9 through 12, now the, the wise men, they get up and they go to Jesus. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with, his, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, spoiling the nativity scene again, they come to a house, not to a stable. You notice that there. Um, Luke 2, 7 is perfectly clear that Jesus was born in a stable, but here you have wise men coming to a house. 
And notice also, it doesn't say that uh, he was a baby in verse 11. It says he was a what? A young child, right? It's amazing what you find out when you read the Bible. You know? (laughs) It's discovery time in here. (laughs) Notice the details when you read the scripture as well. Verse 11, look at the order that Matthew always lays out the young child and his mother. It's always in that order. The child's always first and the mother's always second. You see that in the little details. You see Matthew's heart presenting Christ with the respect that he's, you know, due. He's always listed first. There's just little details in there that stand out to you when you're looking for them. You know, you're looking, Lord, show me. Show me Matthew's heart, why he's writing. Show me how he feels about Jesus, how he felt, right? They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Now, the word worship is the Greek word proskuneo, and its literal definition just means to kiss or to adore. Some definitions even mean when you, when you throw a kiss. There, another definition of it, too, is also when a dog comes up to you and licks your hand, you know, which is pretty interesting. I was, you know, working last night on this stuff, and Aaron comes home from work, and Buddy came. He comes up, our little golden retriever. He's that little. And he comes up, and he just, he'll kiss you on the hand every now and again, you know? And it's just, he's, he's a dog, you know, and he's, he knows you're his master, you know? And that's the idea of proskuneto. It's to prostrate yourself before, to lay down face down before and just to be so overcome with, with who this is. And this word was never used uh, as much uh, for like earthly dignitaries. In fact, you know, some of the other pagans that deified their leaders, this word was used of them, you know, because they're, they're seeing their leaders as like the gods, you know. And so proskuneto has more to do. It's more than just, you know, you meet the, the governor and you're like, hey, governor, you know what I mean? It's more than that. It's something completely different. It's laid out completely before. You are God. You're the king. I owe it all to you. I belong to you, right? And that's what they did. Fascinating that these guys, you know, it doesn't say whether they're Jews or whatever, these wise men, you know, probably not. They're involved in these, you know, arts that uh, the Bible prohibits, astrology and stuff like that. And it's just so fascinating to think through the fact that God spoke to them in a way that they understood, isn't that kind of the way it is? You know, you think about astrology and new age and stuff like that and people that are into like Oprahology and yoga and all this different stuff and they're kind of seeking and they think they're real spiritual and all of a sudden they get a revelation from God and they say, wait a minute, this stuff may be pretty, but it's empty. And then all of a sudden they get led to the true living God. Isn't that cool how God comes to you no matter what you're involved in? You know, some, he can come to anybody wherever and he can reach them, uh, you know, through a way they understand, you know, that's fascinating to me. Man, that makes my hair stand up on my arms. Praise God. We need to keep moving, although I could keep thinking about this and you know, keep talking about it. Now, so their response here, their reaction, they worshiped him, and then when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, these are expensive gifts fit for a king. And Gold, standard treasure, precious metal given to a king. Frankincense, I'm going to read what a commentator says about frankincense. Who, when you were a kid in church, used to think they were talking about Frankenstein? Yeah? I was like, why are you talking about Frankenstein in church? I don't understand this, you know? That and in the Lord's Prayer, Harold be your name. I was like, who's Harold? You know? Who's Harold and why Frankenstein? You know? 
Uh, but what it is, is it's kind of a resin. It has a bitter taste, uh, but a fragrant color. It's sort of uh, used in, chiefly uh, was used in sacrifices and in the temple service. Um, myrrh, it's an aromatic of a similar kind, this commentator says, was employed for fumigation, but especially an ingredient in very precious ointment. They used it around death ceremonies. As well. So many commentators throughout history have suggested that the frankincense pointed to Christ's deity and, um, you know, or to his function as high priest. The myrrh associated then with his burial. Verse 12 Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. So God warns the wise men, He says, Don't go back and give Herod word. You know, it's not going to be good for anybody. So. There we go. So, so far, wise men see the star. They come to Jerusalem looking for the king of Jews. Herod hears about it. He inquires with the religious authorities, sends the wise men to Bethlehem. Wise men come to Bethlehem, worship him. And then he warns them not to return to Herod. Now, focusing on Jesus' family, verses 13 through 23. Now, when they had departed... That's the wise men departing from Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, right? And by the way, in the Greek there, that when they departed, it has the idea of this is closely associated with like the same event. Like the, like the wise men left and instantly this happened. It has that idea. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and, there, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. I want to point out, by the way, this is pretty cool, right? Joseph and Mary don't have a lot of money, okay? Now they just have a new son to take care of, and God's telling them to go all over the place and do all this stuff, but sort of like the mission, sort of like Calvary Chapel, God had brought some people there to provide for them. I mean, they've got gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They just went from being like, they, we don't have anything to we've got all kinds of stuff for the journey now. That's, those were riches. Those were wealth. Where God guides, God what? Provides. Provides. You need to get that through your head today. Somebody does. Somebody's having a hard time with that today, right? Where God guides, God provides. He didn't bring you this far to drop you, okay? Guaranteed. You have testimonies all over the place of that. And so be comforted today by that, even now. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother. He departed for Egypt. He was there till the death of Herod. And it was fulfilled, he says, that it might be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this is interesting. This is a verse in Hosea 11.1. 1. And now this speaks of, in Hosea, it speaks of God leading his people, Israel, out of captivity that they were in in Egypt. You remember Moses? You know, God brings this guy Moses in and he comes in and he, and he sings that song, Let My People Go. Well, I don't know if he sang that song, but that song's about that. You've heard that? Let my people. Nobody's heard it? Okay. You are okay, yeah. Okay, so when Moses led Israelites out of Egypt, come out of bondage, Matthew sees that as a prophecy of what's happening here, that Jesus had to come to Egypt to come out of Egypt, and somehow that fills, fulfills the typology of the Israelites coming out of bondage 
in Egypt. Now, it's interesting how Matthew sees prophecy and how he views the Old Testament. This is what you would call a type, right? So Israel in captivity in Egypt is a type of later Jesus coming out of Egypt. Interesting how he connects those two together. Yeah, we could talk about that more as well, but we won't. Another example of typology would be when Jesus in John 3.14 says that Moses lifted up, what, the bronze serpent? And uh, that's, a, that's another example of a type, typology. So it's a typological prophecy for those of you that are interested. Okay. Now, the governor kills the children. So this is terrible what goes on in this next section. Remember Herod, he's crazy. Look what he does, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth to put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. You remember? He asked the wise men, when did the star appear? And he's doing the math. And he's saying, okay, by this point, if I just have every kid killed that's you know, male, two and under, I'll take care of him. And that's what he does. And you think, oh my goodness, this is a shocker. But actually, this wouldn't be a shocker at all to anybody that knew Herod. They'd be like, he, yeah, this is Herod. This is what Herod does, right? And then look at the prophecy that Matthew ties this to there in verse 18. It's from the book of Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That refers to the weeping and wailing that was going on at 586 B.C., uh, the Babylonian captivity. That's what Jeremiah is referring to there. Um, but Matthew sees that again as a typological, a picture of this mourning that's happening now. What a brutal dude, right? I mean, it's just, hmm. Verse 19 through 21, the family now returns to Israel. By the way, do you see God guiding them around? how he's doing this. He's speaking to wise men through dreams. He's communicating through stars. He's, he's doing all this stuff because he has a plan, right? And nothing on this earth, nothing created can stop God's plan. That is super comforting, you know? If you ever ponder that, you know, if you ever want a remedy for your anxiety, right? Ponder the fact that nothing will stop God's plan. Nothing. Now, verse 19, now when Herod was dead. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, he took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Again, an angel's intervention, but I think there's a great lesson to be learned in how Joseph and Mary obey too, right? Notice they don't say, eh, Okay, thanks for the dream. I got a few things I need to clear up here first. I got, you know, I got some loose ends. I'll take care of those. Then I'll go ahead and get going. Nobody does that. Uh, you know, it, these Bible characters don't do that. I mean, I can think of one that did. Who, who knows who I'm talking about? Right? Jonah, right? <laughs> yeah. But Joseph and Mary are a great example of worshipers, right? God speaks to them. Hey, have, has God ever convicted you of something? Has he ever? You ever been convicted? Did you obey? Yeah. Right? I can't, I, I wish I could say I always did. You know, sometimes I drag my feet a little bit. But I think I'm just really encouraged by Joseph and Mary here. I'm really encouraged about their obedience. Perfect obedience. Immediate obedience, right? 
I think we could all ask the Lord to help us to respond to his promptings like they respond to his promptings, right? Now, the family settles in Nazareth. So it kind of seems maybe they were going back to Bethlehem, but then God intervenes again you know, and says, you need to go to Nazareth. Verse 22, but when they heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. You say, sweet, I grew up in the Nazarene church. He's like, it's like me. Right? <laughs> well, that, they came later. <laughs> now, historians will tell you about Archelaus. You know, you say they're afraid to go there because of him. Well, here's... Here's what one historian, F.F. Bruce, says about him. Archelaus had all of his father's defects of character, but little of his administrative and diplomatic ability. <laughs> so, so in other words, he's just as brutal, but he's not as smart, <laughs> you know? So yikes, uh, good thing not to go there. Apparently he was so brutal and so ineffective that Rome actually had him removed and they replaced him with a governor that they appointed themselves. Imagine the fear, you know, Joseph and Mary trusting the Lord faith by faith, step by step as they're going around. And, and you know, now they're scared of Archelaus, but, but it's interesting. They're, they're scared to go there because of Archelaus, but then right after God warns them in a dream and says, don't go there. That's pretty interesting. I, ponder that, like the, how that worked. They were fearful, but then God afterwards said, don't go there. That's, I don't know. You can think about that. I don't have words to describe it any more than that. And they came to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth, um, this was another one that was confusing for me when I was growing up in church because my mom had Nazareth albums. And I was like, what? <laughs> What's going on, man? You got Harold and uh, Frankenstein and Nazareth, man. This church is awesome, you know. It's an obscure small town about 65 miles north outside of Jerusalem. Estimates say there were about 500 residents Pottery artifacts um, show that most of the people there had migrated from Judea. The place was of low reputation, and it's mentioned nowhere in the Old Testament. Now, do you remember what Nathaniel says in John 1.46? What does he say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was the sort of idea. If you met a Nazarene, you would have to fight not to immediately place yourself above them, right? You know, God help us, we do that with people, don't we? Right? I, sometimes we meet people and then they, tell, they say what, one or two things that trigger something and we automatically think they're lower than us. Right? God help us, that's not a godly trait, right? But that's what people would do when they met a Nazarene. They would say, he's from Nazareth. And then like Nathaniel, they'd say, how can any, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding? And so it's interesting that Jesus, you know, went there, learned there, grew up there, was shaped by that place. It's pretty interesting. Now, this prophecy where he says here that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophets, notice the difference there. What is, what's the difference on the word prophet this time where it was in other words? I'll give you the answer because we don't have that much time. There's an S at the end of it. This time he says prophets. He doesn't say prophet, singular. Now, that's significant because you won't find a Bible verse that says he shall be a Nazarene. Did you know that? 
There isn't a place in the Old Testament that says he should be a Nazarene. And so scholars have a few different opinions about this, and I'll give you a few. First one, um, Matthew essentially meant he will be a Nazarene, um, a Nazarite. You remember the vow that Samson took, right? He wasn't supposed to ever cut his hair. He wasn't supposed to drink or eat anything that came from the grape. He wasn't supposed to drink wine. He wasn't supposed to have anything to do with carcasses, remember, which makes the whole lion thing with the sweet eating out of the all that stuff. He was pretty much not going with his vow a lot of time. But that's called the Nazarite vow. And what you would do if you were a Jew is you could take this special consecration. You could say, I'm going to set my life apart to the Lord even further, and I'm going to take the Nazarite vow. And so some people think that that's what Matthew is talking about here. He should be called a Nazarene. The prophet said he should be a Nazarene. Um, you know, we hear of Jesus, you know, I don't know. That doesn't seem to fit so much. Could be, though. Another one is simply that we should take special notice of the fact he doesn't ascribe this to one particular prophet, but to the prophets. And there were no, bless you, there were no doubt many things that the prophets spoke that weren't written in the Old Testament. I mean, I'm sure every word that they said isn't written down. So maybe it was just a whole group of prophets, you know, kind of always said that he will um, come from humble and despised origins, right? And you read about through Isaiah, and it, you know, it's clear in there that the prophets knew he would come from humble and despised origins. That'd be a fitting description to call him a Nazarene then, because of what we learned about you know, the social status of the place and everything. Yet another, Matthew may have had Isaiah 11.1 1 in mind, where it says this, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, the word branch in the Hebrew is the word nitzer, which sounds like Nazarene when you're in the original languages. And so some people think that he's referring to Isaiah 11.1 1 here. But this may blow your mind, but I don't know the exact answer. So you can have fun just kind of, you know, wrestling around with that. But all those things in some regard are true. You know, he was to come from humble, despised origins. Now, so far in chapter 1 and 2, you know, he'd be the son of David. He'd be the son of Abraham. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's born a virgin, born of a virgin. Uh, he's born in Bethlehem. He comes out of Egypt, and he's called a Nazarene, right? So you just think about the chapter 2. He's to, he's to be born in Bethlehem, come out of Egypt, and be a Nazarene. And we see how God led him around through his family to fulfill all of those, uh, you know, prophecies. Pretty amazing how the hand of God is upon this world. Now, let's make some concluding thoughts here. Application sort of thoughts. And I put them up on the screen here even so we could just take some time and look at them. Let's look at these reactions to Jesus that we find in this passage here today. The religious leaders, verses 3 through 6. Just go and look at it again. Verses 3 through 6 said, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled all Jerusalem. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes, the people together, he inquired of them where he was to be born. And you remember, they just rattled off quickly. Micah 5, 2 gave him the prophecy. But they had no desire to go with them to find him. Now, I think this is really significant. Although the chief priests and the scribes knew the scriptures well, the prophecies regarding the Messiah's birth, yet they don't display any interest in obeying and seeking him. You know, today there's a person that has all kinds of Bible knowledge but no heart to obey. 
They can tell you everything about church. They can tell you facts about the Bible. When you have Bible trivia night, they're always like, I got it, I got it. They go to church. They may be in church every week. These people were the religious leaders of the time. They knew more about religion than anybody, but yet no heart for the Messiah. And there are people like that today. They like the Bible. They like the social aspect of the church. They like the networking capabilities. I even heard from a one, one guy one time, he says, I like to go to this particular church in town because it's got a lot of girls there. Well, that's a good place to meet girls. I mean, if you're going to meet them anywhere, hey, single guys, single ladies, meet, you know, go to church, that's good. But there are people that like ch churchianity. Is, have you ever heard people call it that? There are people that like stuff that looks really religious but actually don't have a heart for Jesus. They don't have a personal relationship with him. They may be like this guy, these guys that know their Bible inside and out. In fact, the scribes could tell you the exact middle letter of the Old Testament. That's how well they knew it. No heart for Jesus. No heart to get up and follow, right? They had perks in society. They had the good parking spots. They had the title, reverend, pastor, leader. The title, they had the title Christian. Well, Jew. But no heart for Jesus. I think it's a tragic response when somebody's Christianity is just business as usual. With no heart for the Messiah. Now, look at the next reaction in verses 7 and 8. Herod, secretly called the wise men, he determines from them, you know, what time does star come, and then he lies. He says, bring him to me, you know, let me know, so I can come and, you know, bring me the word so I can come and worship him. Herod lies, really he wants to kill him. And then the next part of Herod's reaction, verses 16 through 18, he just says, you know what, kill all of them, kill all the babies, all the kids, two and under. I'll take care of this problem of another king. He pretended to want worship, but in reality, he was threatened by Jesus' claim to lordship over his life. He didn't want anything to do with anyone that would challenge his self-centered rule and reign over his own life. Now, I wonder if there isn't a little bit of Herod in all of us. We get defensive and angry at any threat to our rule and reign over our lives, don't we? We like a Jesus that has some good teaching, inspirational quotes, that promises us the abundant life, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, gifts, rich spiritual experiences. He gives us a way into heaven. But yet when his claim to rule and reign over our lives comes, we get defensive and we say, hmm, I don't know about this Jesus. And we react sometimes in anger, sometimes in defensiveness. Jesus was a threat to Herod's kingdom in the same way that he is a threat to yours. You have a kingdom, don't you? All of us do as humans, right? God's given us, in a sense, a small little kingdom. I have 
an inner voice and I have control of my hands. Um, I've got my car keys. That's part of my kingdom. I have the keys to my house. It's part of my kingdom. I have uh, my dog. He's part of my kingdom. I have free will. That's my kingdom. And just the same way that Jesus was a threat to Herod's rule over his kingdom, the Messiah's claim over my life is a threat to me as I want to rule and reign over my kingdom. Have you ever thought of that? Jesus doesn't come into anybody's life and say, look, all I want to do is just give you, I want to boost you along on this path that you're on and just give you some inspirational quotes and just pat you on the back. That's some of what Jesus is about. That's not the whole picture. In Luke 9.23, Jesus says, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me, right? And so it's tragic of what's been done with Christianity. And I don't know the motives behind it, whether it's to fill churches, whether it's to make people feel good, whether Freud, Skinner, and all the other psychologists with their views of self-esteem has so infected the church. I don't know what it is, but people are scared to say what Jesus said. And what Jesus said is, you follow me because I'm the king. I'm the one worthy of worship and praise. I'm the God of this universe. And you follow me, right? And that's a threat. That's a threat to me, which it shouldn't be because if I'm honest, I'll look at my life and go, how does it go when I rule my own life? I mean, come on. <laughs> As he said over here, he goes. <laughs> Jesus is so gracious. He's a humble king. He's from Nazareth. You immediately think of yourself as better than him. I don't need Jesus. I don't need any of that stuff. I mean, come on. Christianity's good for those guys that need it, Right? I don't need any of that stuff. You immediately see the Nazarene and you place yourself above him immediately. But friend, that is arrogance and that is pride. And you have no idea how blind you are. No idea. But the humble king, the gracious king, the loving king that comes to rule and reign over your heart, to give the abundant life, to give you purpose and meaning, to take away your anxieties and your fears and your doubts and your worries, to, to lead you into green pastures. This guy, this king has come and he's a threat to your rule and reign. Have you given control of Jesus Christ to your life or are you, you know, kind of making up another version of Christianity today? Now, let's look at the last response and we'll conclude here. And then as we're doing this, Corey, would you, not yet, but when I pray, would you start handing out the elements for communion? That'd be awesome. Thank you. Verses 11 through 12, you see the reaction of the wise men. And... It's beautiful, right? A measure of light had been given to them. They sensed the light in the darkness. Sure, it even came through their new age weirdness at that time. And I'm not condoning any of that stuff. That stuff is the devil, man. This stuff they're doing next door, these angel readings and all this stuff, and they're doing a healing fair down in Willowbrook Mall today, that stuff is, that's not Christian, to put it mildly, Okay. And I, I wish the Lord would just rebuke that stuff in Jesus' name because you know what? It's just like those wise men. They saw the measure of light and they only got as far as Jerusalem, didn't they? They didn't get all the way there though, did they? Because what did they need? They needed revelation from the scriptures, didn't they? Where is he? We saw his star, but we only got this far and we're confused. Where is he? Because that kind of light only gets you that far. Have you ever thought of this? You ever think through these things? 
Who found him first? Who went right there? Amen. Right? Lowly, humble, not worldly, just passing through. You know, wise men and wise women today are still responding to the light of the Holy Spirit and the light of the Scriptures with worship and love and adoration. There's only a few responses to Jesus, aren't there? I mean, it's, if you know who he is, you understand what he came to do, you understand why it's important, there's only a few responses. Anger and defensiveness, get away from me. I'll do it myself. I've got my own life figured out. You don't know me. Indifference. Oh, you know what? I grew up in church. I've heard all about Jesus. It doesn't really matter. I don't have any intention of, you know, serving him. This is old news to me. I know more probably about Christianity than everybody in this place because I grew up in church. I know all about it. Oh, yeah? Well, you're indifferent as the chief priests and the scribes. And then there's the reaction, the response that God helped me, I always want to have. And that's just proskaneto, worshiping, lying before him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done for me. You took me from the pit of hell. You took me from my pride, my defensiveness, my sin, my anger, hurting people, fearful, doubting, no purpose in life, nearly suicidal, wrapped up in addictions, trying to find happiness through relationships, every other thing else, guilt of all these things that I've done wrong in my life. And you gently came to me and you revealed to me, you said, I need something else. Adam, you need something else. And you listening to me, you need something else. And he reveals himself to you and he puts his hand out and he says, I'm a humble king. I'm a gentle king. I'm loving. I'm lowly. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy. All you who are burdened and heavy laden, come to me. And I will give you rest. And what is it to do the work of the Father? They said to Jesus at one point. And he said, it's to believe on the one whom he sent. That's it. You come to him and you respond to him. You respond to the light. He's speaking to you now through your conscience, through his Holy Spirit. And you drop all defensiveness. You say, Lord, you have free reign. You can have free reign in my life and my heart. Go ahead and sit on the throne. Sit on the throne of my heart, Lord. What's your response like today? So, Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We thank you, Father, for... The humble king, he's approachable. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. Our hearts are filled with gratitude, Lord, and we just bring to you our praise and our adoration. Thank you, Father, for speaking to us here today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.